All right, good morning again. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to keep going through our journey here through the letter from Paul to the Corinthians. Chapter 7 is, a, I think, a pretty exciting chapter. It's a, it's a chapter that brings a lot of humanity, I think, to Paul and to relationships and how they work in a church setting. Again, the word church, uh, not to be repetitive. Remember, it's, a, it's from a Greek word, this is ekklesia, in my poor Greek, but it uh, essentially means a called out gathering. So we say, you know, I'm going to church, and I'm not trying to make people offenders for a word, but the reality is you've never gone to church in your life because you are the church. And so what happens is you gather together with other people that are called out from that. Now, I'm not saying let's stop calling this church. I'm just saying that the purpose of what God is doing um, and what we get to be involved in, and really what we're going to talk a lot about today, is just that, that, that you and I are called out from this world, and we get to be part of something fantastic. And in chapter 7, we get to see uh, a little bit more of Paul's uh, human side. I think a lot of times, uh, for you, you read Paul, and obviously Paul's a man of God. We're not trying to knock Paul down a couple notches or something like that. But just make the point that a lot of times for us, you know, the more you read and you study, you just think, man, this is incredible. You know, even though his autobiographical statement was that he was the chief of sinners, we go, ah, that's probably not really true. Uh, even though he said of himself there in Romans chapter 7, the good that I would do, I don't find myself doing that. But the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And the word there in the Greek is prazo, practice. That's what I find myself practicing. So a lot of times we kind of dismiss those statements he made about his own struggles in life. And we go, no, 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 we're pretty sure he levitated and had a cape. And like Jesus was here. And then Paul's like, kind of right there. But as we're going to read today, Paul had emotions and struggles and concerns that he dealt with. He gave to the Lord. But that, that he worked through difficulties, and especially in this relational setting between he and the Corinthians. And it came to be something Wonderful in a, in a relationship. And so if you're, if you're unfamiliar that we're with 2 Corinthians, we know that this is actually, uh, at the least, it's the third letter to the Corinthians. You say, well, how do you know that? Because remember in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, this is the second time I'm writing to you. So at the very least, there's a letter before 1 Corinthians that we do not have. And most likely he visited at least once uh, before this letter was written. So all that to say is Paul has a, he started the church there. He has a very uh, engaging relationship with them, right? He has a, a vested interest with them. He cares about them. And what we're going to see is really how that works out in his writing. So remember in 2 Corinthians, and we'll read it today, one of the amazing things that has occurred is that that, that church that was so radically dysfunctional, right? You have a, uh, the, the elders are kind of boasting about the fact that they're, uh, they embrace a sexual relationship between a man and his stepmother. Uh, you have people that are suing each other in the church. You have people that are getting so drunk during, during church potlucks that they end up partaking of the Lord's Supper drunk. Uh, I mean, can you imagine that? You know, somebody comes up to the table and is like, mm, praise the Lord. I mean, it's the whole gamut, right? That would be pretty, that'd be pretty difficult to, to be a part of, right? But the household of Chloe, we're told in 1 Corinthians, has written to Paul, and now Paul's responding and working through all that. So we're going to see essentially how Paul, uh, on a personal level, how he's uh, looking at the Corinthians and how he's wanting to help them to turn from sin, turn to God, and how to walk with God, right? Because the, the ultimate goal of correction is not behavioral modification. 
Right? It's not. Behavioral modification is good, right? It's good to stop doing bad behaviors, but that's not the end goal of Christianity, right? From Genesis to Revelation, the end goal of Christianity is fellowship with God, right? If you look and you turn back to Genesis, in the beginning, you have Adam and Eve uh, eating from trees, evidently doing some botany, tending a garden, and then they sin. And then when they sin, what happens? The Lord comes looking for them. He says, where are you? Restoring fellowship, right? That's an offer. It's not that, that God was somehow ignorant, and he was like, hey, Holy Spirit, have you seen Adam and Eve? He's like, no, I don't know what's going on. But where are they? It's, a, it's an invitation, right? Come fellowship with me again. Then they said, we were naked, so we hid. So he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Again, what is that? It's an invitation from God for human beings to be honest with him, right? Because the only way you have fellowship is through honesty. If you're dishonest, if we're dishonest with one another in our horizontal relationships, or if we're dishonest with God in our vertical relationships, then we don't actually receive the love that God has for us in a way that is, is meaningful to us. And we'll talk more about that. So it's, it, we see that in Genesis. You see it in, uh, in Job, one of the earliest, if not the earliest book written. You see that in Abraham's life. So these are pre-law examples where God is still looking to fellowship with human beings. You see it in the law. You know, one of the, my favorite verses is out of, I wondered for years, why is violating the Sabbath the death penalty? That seems pretty harsh. Remember even when they, they begin, they actually start practicing the law and some people see some dude picking up sticks on Saturday and they go to Moses and they're like, this dude's picking up sticks on Saturday. What do you want us to do? But the law had already said the penalty was death. Moses knew the law. They knew the law. It's why they went to Moses and said, what do you want us to do? This dude's picking up sticks on Saturday, like what we do every day, right? And he says, Moses says, I don't know. I'll ask God, which is interesting because Moses very much knew. The law had already been given. He had already dictated it to them. And so he goes to God and he says, what do you want us to do with this guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath? And God says, kill him. Kill him. Grab him. Get everybody who's around who's near. And everybody picks up stones and you kill that guy. The application, you better take a day off. No, that's not the application. The application is this, because in, in Exodus 31, he says, you're going to keep my Sabbath. And he gives us the reason why. He says, because I am the Lord that makes you holy. See, the Sabbath was it's supposed to be a day, especially during the wilderness journeys, where you picked enough uh, uh, manna on Friday morning, and it would last you all the way through. So Saturday was literally a day that you chilled in your tent with your family and ate manna and other people that were around you. It was, it was just a day to have fellowship. And so God says, I want you to take a day where you're doing nothing. You're not doing anything for me. You're not working hard. You can't point to anything you've done that day. And you remember, I'm the one that makes you right with me. I'm the one that has separated you to me. In other words, it was a day to remember that God has done everything. And the law, even when you look at the sacrifices and the tithes and the offering, all throughout the law in Deuteronomy, there's some shocking ones. The, he, where he says, for example, in Deuteronomy, and we looked at this in our service we had at the camp, and I, I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, where in the tithe and the offering, he says, in Deuteronomy, he says, look, I believe it's chapter 12, it might be 14, but he says, hey, if you, if you live too far from the place that I'm going to choose for my name, which we know would be Jerusalem, but they don't know that yet, right, because they haven't launched out into the land yet in Deuteronomy. And he says, when you know, when, or when I place my name somewhere, if it's too far for you to bring your tithes, then you know, the grain, uh, your firstborn of your cattle and so forth, he says, then, I, then go and, and, and exchange them for money somewhere. 
Go trade them for money. And he says, and then take that money and journey with your family to, to Jerusalem. And he says, and then and go and buy whatever you want. That doesn't sound right. He says, go and buy whatever you want. He says, if you want cow, if you want to eat cow meat, then go buy cow meat. If you want goat, then go buy goat. He says, buy whatever you want. And he even throws in there, and I'm not advocating for drunkenness, but we can, we can turn there and read it if you're skeptical. He says, you can buy wine or strong drink. And he says, then eat that and drink that with your family and rejoice before me because I am the Lord. So even in the law, nobody's advocating for drunkenness. Even in the law, there was this idea where even in the tithes given, was that it wasn't about the tithe. It wasn't that you gained righteousness through tithing. The whole idea was a, a respect and a response and a going back to God. And in a family atmosphere, that you go with your family and you rejoice in how good God is. It doesn't matter if it's Adam and Eve, if it's Job, it's Abraham, it's the law. And then ultimately, what do you see in the disciples? You see fellowship. In Acts 2.42, what do you see? It says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And it says in fellowship. And the way that the, the, the Greek sentence structure is, it's not fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. It's fellowship as defined, breaking of bread and prayer. Does that make sense? Fellowship is not separate from these other two. Fellowship is actually, when Paul's writing, or when Luke is writing this, describing what's happening in, in this, uh, this time, he's explaining that the fellowship was they ate together. The fellowship was that they prayed together. So you have this idea, and again, it's the word koinonia, which is not just online friendship. It's the idea of deep fellowship. And now we know from, from all the example, we know from the law, we know all these things, that that fellowship occurs with God and with others through honesty. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to just dump all of our things to everybody who comes through the door. But it's interesting how over time, because we hurt people and people hurt us, over time, what we develop is a guarded heart. And to some extent, that's okay, because we can't just let everybody in, right? There are people that will harm us. There are people that, that want to, uh, because of their own brokenness, for whatever reason it might be, that they destroy people that they get near. But we need to be lowering that before God, and, and really part of this fellowship, this, this whole idea of church or ecclesia called out, is that we would be then sharing that with others. Honesty. Honesty breeds true love. And this is what I mean. When we're honest with one another, all of a sudden, and someone reciprocates love for us, and we, we, we are cared for, we are able to experience that full love. If we live in dishonesty, if I tell you, hey, I have no sin... Number one, we know from 1 John, I'm a liar. But if that's how I present myself, hey, I have no sin. Hey, I'm fine. Everything's great. Then that will reap certain things in my life. It creates a facade and a mask, right? And so then people that love me, they don't love me. They love my facade. And that's the lonely place to be because we've probably all been there where we keep to ourselves and we don't want to say much whether we think we talk too much or too little or we're, we're too old or too young or too stupid or too smart or whatever it is that we're afraid of exposing and we just kind of live outside it in this kind of isolated position. And so what's, what God is doing and what he's wanting to bring about is this incredible fellowship that we get to enjoy with him and then others. And then he, he completes it. When Paul tells us in, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, look, when we are finally with him, when we see him face to face, that we'll know him as we are known. Right, so again, this is by review. We've talked about this in, in, in a, the last past weeks. But think about that. 
to be fully known by God, which we are now, and to be fully accepted in Christ. That God fully accepts you right now, today, with all of your issues and all of your problems. You're accepted in Christ because Christ paid for it. And in that same way of that full acceptance and knowledge that God has of you, that one day that you and I will know him in the same way. Obviously, he has no sin. But that we will know Christ to the same magnitude, to the same volume, however you want to say it, that he knows us, which seems impossible. It seems like a pipe dream. But ultimately, when we get to heaven, you and I will be together knowing God as we've never known him before. And knowing one another and be fully exposed to one another and be fully accepted by one another in Christ. It's what we've always dreamed of. It's what we've always wanted to be, as C.S. Lewis puts it, on the inside of the dance. To be the popular kid. To be accepted and, and not re- despised or rejected. That is literally what God is building. When a person gets saved and all these things buildings and money and programs, they are what they are. But your soul is what God is building and attaching to other souls. And we have different imagery for that, that he says that we're like living stones that are being built together to be a dwelling place for him. Uh, that he talks about, you know, that, uh, uh, whether it's the, the, uh, the temple, that we're being built into a temple, or when we see that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, these relationships that he illustrates. And then in chapter 6, that's what Paul ends with. He, he makes this call after Paul's uh, kind of discussing his ministry and the difficulty in it. In it. Then he calls uh, the Corinthians and he says, look, we don't want to be unequally yoked and we don't want to be given to idolatry and these different things. And so he, he, he comes to this conclusion in chapter 7 and verse 1 where he says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So this, this application that Paul gives to this thing that God is building called the kingdom of God, the ecclesia, he says we, we ought to purify ourselves. We ought to make a movement to let God into our lives, right? That's what purification is, or holiness, being set aside for God, and that is accomplished by God. But he says here, according to the promises. Well, what are the promises? Well, what Paul does in the preceding verses in chapter 6, he essentially makes a medley of a bunch of Old Testament verses, and you can look them up on your own time. So in this medley, these verses, he says this, I will live with them, this is God speaking, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So when Paul says that we're to purify ourselves, that we're to set aside ourselves. He's not calling us just to abstinence here. He's not just saying just avoid things. What he's saying is because God has made this promise, for what? These are all fellowship verses, right? It's interesting. None of these are just lordship verses. None of these are verses that like, I'll kill you if you break my law. These are all promises that are based on what? A father, you'll be my sons and my daughters. Intimate relationship, right? That's the goal of sons and daughters, right? That, that you raise them, you bless them, you love them, you watch over them. He says, and he says, that's the kind of relationship. So we purify ourselves because we have a father, not just, not just a, an, an angry dictator, which God is not. He says, then in the beginning, he says, I will live with them and walk among them. Again, that's, that's intimate. It's intimate to live with someone, isn't it? When you live with someone, you get to know all their faults, right? You know all about them. 
You learn what they're like. You learn what upsets them. You learn what doesn't upset them. You learn what they don't care about and value. You learn about what they do care about and value. You learn everything over time when you live with someone. And God's promise is, I will live with you. It's pretty incredible that God wants to live with us. It's one thing for us to want to live with God. It's a whole other thing that he says, my goal here, what I'm working out, what I'm doing, is I want to live with you. And he says, and I'll be their God. And what is, you know, is, is he has defined himself that he's love. He's not one of the false gods that demands our firstborn. He's not one of the false gods that demands, uh, you know, sacrifice in the sense of if you do away with one thing, then I'll give you something better, right? That's what idolatry was. I will sacrifice my firstborn child to Moloch because that will gain me more children through Moloch, the power of Moloch, right? That's idolatry. Or I will, I will bring grain or an offering, a burnt offering to Baal, the Lord of the flies or the harvest, and therefore Baal will give me a better harvest if I sacrifice a little to get a lot. That's pagan. That's a pagan idea. To sacrifice a little to get a lot is a pagan idea. God's sacrificing and offerings are not sacrificing a little so God will give me more. It's showing a, a, a faith in what God has said that without the shedding of blood, there's, a remission, there's no remission of sin. So when he says, I will be their God, he's not saying, you sacrifice a bunch and then I'll be your God. The idea is there, I'm there to lead you. I'm there to guide you. I'm there to love you. I'm there to provide for you. I'm there to bring you near. I am the Lord that sanctifies you, right? I will be their God. This is an incredible proclamation of his loving kindness. And he says, and they will be my people, that God would claim you and me. That he would raise his hand in heaven and say, no, that one's mine. I love that one. That's my son and my daughter. Yeah, they're kind of wonky right now, but it's getting worked out. That's my kid. Right? It's incredible. Then he says this verse, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. That had to do with uh, a, a, a command to Israel and, and how that affects us. Again, it's important to remember, Israel was actually allowed to, to marry people from the land that were not Israelites. That's in Deuteronomy. They couldn't marry people that were immediate, that they were conquering, but the people that were outside, or, you know, this is probably going to spur a conversation, but women and children that were brought in as servants, they could marry them. The women, not the children. So it's not, just, it's not this idea that you can't have friends outside church or something like that. Because he goes on from there and he says this. He says, come out and be separate. And he says, touch no unclean thing and I'll receive you. So this idea of the separateness that he's, that he's is important. I'm not trying to minimize separating from sin because we need to do that. But again, these aren't promises that I won't be with you if you don't separate from sin. And a lot of times that's how we read it because that was not the truth of Israel, was it? Who these verses were originally to. Can you imagine how Israel would have fared if God said, until you fully follow me, I won't have anything to do with you? Can you imagine how you and I would fare if God said to you, until you are 100% mine in thought and deed, I will not be with you? We would not be here. None of us would. There, I hope, I, 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 I trust that we all understand that none of us could raise our hand and say, God would be with me. Because he wouldn't. If this idea that was communicated was, if you're... If you have any sin in your life, then I don't, I, don't, I don't have fellowship with you. How could have Jesus hung out with the disciples if that was the truth? He couldn't have. He would have had to leave them in the dust. 
So what is being said here? The reality is when we're messing, when we're not separate, when we're uh, loving the things of this world, when we're walking in sin, and, and let's, let's be clear here. This isn't just like being drunk on the street. When we're hating our brothers, that's the litmus test for the most part. Do we love human beings? Right? When, when, when John writes to the church and he says, hey, if you want to see your, if you're in fellowship with Christ, it's... The test is, are you drunk or not? The test is, are you sexing it up outside of marriage or not? No, he says, if you want to know if you're in Christ, walking with Christ, then the test is, do you love your brother? Which is sobering. I saw a meme the other day. It made me laugh so hard. Because it was, I think I might have shared it on my Facebook. I don't usually do that, but I laughed so hard. Because it was like one of those conversational memes. It said, Jesus, love each other. Christians, nope. And then it had a picture of this cat slamming the, the uh, keyboard on a computer. And I like cats. But so it's, and dogs too. But the, uh, but the, the, that's, it's just so true with us. We're like, yeah, we love you, Lord. Your goodness has followed me all of my life. That guy said what online? <laughs> you saw what movie? <laughs> You're welcome. That's the test. And you say, well, that's why I answer them sarcastically and rudely online, because I do love them. That's garbage. It's garbage. Because you know how you can receive love when someone's trying to correct you. You know how it is to be on the other side. And you know right well that when someone just rips off a public comment about how lame you are and unspiritual you are, how you have no idea, you know how it makes you respond. It doesn't make you go, praise the Lord. Let's invite that guy over for dinner, right? It makes you instead say, forget you then. I'm not going to go to your stupid church, and I don't want any part of your stupid Jesus if that's how you're going to walk. That's how you're going to treat me. So we don't have to worry about all the big bads. Let's just talk about loving each other. Are we really going to raise our hand and say that God has always been with me because I've always been faithful? No. God has always been with you because he promised he would. And he's with you now because of the blood of Christ, and it paid for everything. And he's drawing you back to himself because he loves you. And that's what this is about. Let's purify ourselves, not because it's a sacrifice to get more from God, but instead because it draws us nearer to God. So that when we're, when we're not dabbling in sin, not raging at our brethren from different denominations, not raging at each other because we took the last chicken leg at the potluck or something like that, but when we're actually walking with God, actually saying no to those feelings and those, that anger and those things, all of a sudden we have this incredible fellowship with him, right? And then with one another. And so Paul is laying out this whole thing. He's saying, this is what God is doing. This is how, what Paul's been suffering for. This is why he's gotten a beat down in almost every city that he visited. This is why he's willing to die. It's why he gets literally stoned to death. Not with weed, but stones. And, and, and it gets up and goes back into the city. Right? This is why he's doing it. Because God is building something incredible. And it's you and me being accepted in Christ and then extend, extending that same acceptance to one another, not validating sin, okay? We're not saying that, but walking with people, loving them, and that agape moral love, desiring the best for them in the midst of their sin. It's what we need, and it's what everybody else in this room and in this world needs, and that's what Paul's talking about. And he gets a little bit, we see an opening in Paul where we, how he works through the difficulties personally in ministry. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, he says this, Make room for us in your hearts. 
We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. So Paul, writing to them, remember, this is there, and we're going to see more, that they responded very well to his original letter or letters of correction. But even in that, you have Judaizers and false teachers that are still there. And you have critics of Paul that are still there and are still bad-mouthing Paul and in a sense trying to draw people away from this gospel of grace. And so Paul now writing back to them, he says, make room for us in your hearts. Now, that's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Because, isn't it? because that is, it's, it's, a, it's a place of intimacy, it's a place of trust, right? Obviously, this is a metaphor, but the metaphor, it, it, it gives us the picture, the idea. If you let someone into your heart, that's your innermost sphere, right? That's who you are. It's in, in the, in the uh, Bible, typically when we're talking about heart, it's the idea of your soul, right? It's, it's you on the inside. And so Paul is saying, let us into your deepest place. And then he gives them a reason to do that. And this is important. We don't demand trust from people. Does that make sense? Let me make a little side note here. If someone is trying to demand you trust them, that's not a good thing, right? Because trust is always earned. So if someone comes along and says, no, you have to trust me, or you have to, or if, you, if we've offended someone, we've wronged them, it, we have no right to then say, well, I repented, you have to trust me. Trust and forgiveness are two different things. We do need to forgive people, but we don't have to trust them, okay? And, and we don't expect them to trust us but until time goes by, and we have an opportunity to earn that trust. And so Paul, he's saying, I want you to trust me, but he's telling them why. And he says, look, he goes, remember our ministry. Remember, this is at least the third, and, and some scholars, you can you know, debate it if you want. It doesn't really matter in the end. Say this might be the fourth letter. And then he's probably visited twice, and he started the church and was there for 18 months. So Paul is fully vested in the Corinthians. Does that make sense? Paul is all in on this radical, dysfunctional church that's smack-talking him and that has just some craziness going on. Well, it used to, anyway. So he's all in with them. And, he, and he, what he does, he tries to call them to remembrance. And he says, you know, remember our ministry. He says, we wronged no one. Literally, we didn't injure anyone. We didn't harm anyone when we were there. We didn't, there was no assaulting that was going on. We, we, didn't, we didn't try to, uh, to cause people to be hurt. And, and again... As complicated creatures, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, sometimes we, more, we care more about being right and making sure that the person knows that we're right and they're wrong than we actually do about restoration. And that's a problem. It's a problem in the church. It's a problem in Christianity. We don't want to be that way. So Paul says, look, we didn't injure anyone. We, we didn't you know, assault people. And he says, he says after that, he says, we didn't corrupt anyone, literally ruin them or spoil them. We didn't corrupt people when we were there. Remember our ministry. It wasn't like that. We were for you. We're not trying to, to give you a false religion or try to uh, bring um, like a duality or a spoilage into your life. Then he goes from there and he says, he says we didn't exploit anyone. And you might recall this from other letters, right? Because Paul says, when I was there, I didn't take any money from you. He's, other churches were giving to him, and he was working with his hands as a, as a tent maker, but he said, I didn't take anything from you. I got no money from you because I wanted the gospel to be free to you. So he didn't think I was there for money. 
So here he's saying, I didn't exploit, I didn't, we didn't take advantage of anybody that was here. We didn't drum up a bunch of money. We didn't rip people off. It was not our motivation. So he's, what he's doing is, is, as he's done obviously, or not obviously, but previously in this letter and in other places, he's just making the point, my ministry, if you think about it, it was very genuine to you. It's we cared about you and we loved you. And so he says, because of that, will you consider, please, accept me and his associates into your heart to, to trust us in what we have for you, Right? He goes on from there and he says, I'm not saying this to condemn you. Again, this is personal and it's really important. Why are we saying what we say to people? This is a really important idea. If we're going to be builders of fellowship, God's kingdom, right? If we're going to be part of the solution to that, even when we're addressing sin in a life, if that's what we're doing, if we're going to, it's, it's this, I'm not saying anything to condemn you. We need to check our own hearts on that. I'm not accusing you guys of anything. I just know what my own heart is like. And a lot of times, we can go to some dark places when we see people sinning. And it becomes less about their restoration, and it becomes more about, I'm con- you're just bad. I've My whole life, we become, you know what we become like? We become like the older brother in the prodigal son. Where we go, my whole life I've served you, and you've never given me a goat to party with my friends. You're unjust, Father. Remember, he had beef. The younger brother comes home from riotous living, spending all his dad's money, complete irresponsibility, complete debauchery, comes back in poverty. And the brother's response to this incredible greeting that the father gives to his son is, "Ah, you never gave me a goat to party with, to have a feast with. What kind of chump dad are you? He's disappointed. He's angry. So it's not far off to understand that a human response to observing sin, especially if we believe we've been faithful, can easily become, I'm saying this to condemn you. Because doggone it, you're wrong, and I'm not. But here's the thing. That will not build God's kingdom, will it? If we employ measures just to get behavioral modification, we will not build God's kingdom. We'll build at best a bunch of clones that don't feel loved and are just going through motions that look good. That's what we'll build. The kingdom of heaven is much more messy than that. There are many more tears than that. We're here to love people in their deepest, darkest hours, not condone their sin, but to point out that God still loves you, He's still working, and He still has great things for you. To point out that what you're doing that's, that's separating you, it's not causing God to flee from you, it's causing you to not be in a position where you'll even receive from Him. That's what we're doing. And so Paul's saying, I didn't say the things I did to condemn you. There was no interest in Paul to cast judgment on them. He says, I've said before and have such a place in my heart that we would have died for you. We would live or die for you. Living for people is much harder than dying for them. You know, it's, it, it's the, the, honestly, I think the easy thing is to like dive in front of the active shooter bullet because then you're just with Jesus. It's much harder to live for people. It's much harder to be there day in and day out. And only love does it. Love or condemnation are both very powerful. And only love is willing to live with someone. To to recognize, I I see you're broken like I'm broken. And I'll still walk with you through that. And I'll still love with you. Uh, I'll still love you. I'll, I'll still stand with you like God would. 
So Paul says, I'm, when I wrote you those letters and what I'm saying now, it's in no means to try to condemn you, to try to guilt you or shame you or make you feel so bad you just stop that behavior. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, I'm saying this because I love you and I would die for you if need be. And he proved that over and over and over again, didn't he? So I guess here's the, here's the crux. Here's the, here's the fulcrum. This is difficult. Because if you make the application, are you willing to die for your brother? And it becomes this nebulous thing where you go, I don't know, I guess. So that's not our application. The application is in my heart of hearts, in an honest heart before God. Do I love them? And if the answer is no, I really don't care about them. If the answer in your heart is, I don't care about the people I go to church with, I really don't. Then just answer and ask, why? Why don't I? Why could I be in a room full of people and, and not give a rip about them? Why would I be in a room full of people that, that Christ paid blood for and think to them, myself, I don't have time for them. They really don't matter to me. This isn't a big deal. Again, if I can say like Paul, I'm, this isn't a, a message of condemnation. Hopefully it's a, a, a message of elevation to be like, oh, God's calling me to something better. I have a lot of things in this life that I can do. But the reality is the souls that are around me are the most important thing. Because those are the things that are going with me. These are the people I'll spend eternity with. It doesn't matter if you're the staunchest Armenian and you're falling in and out of salvation or if you're the staunchest Calvinist and you got chose before time. And everybody in between. Everybody's going to be there in glory. It doesn't matter if you're running up and down the aisles waving banners or if your hands are in your pocket and you sing only hymns with no music anywhere. You're both going to heaven in Christ. So really, there's a million differences that we all have. But, but, but love, and expressing love and caring for individuals, that's what, that's, that's what we're called to. You can sing just hymns, God bless you. You can wave flags, God bless you. You can be predestined. You can be saved, you know, whatever. It's, God bless you. The point is, have you asked Christ to forgive you? Because anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did any of us know what Armenian was or Calvinist when we got saved? Did any of us know what a Pentecostal was or a Baptist or a Calvary guy before we got saved? Did somebody sit down with us and say, well, this is how salvation works? Do you see there was Jesus and he was with God and man and, and explain everything? Could any of us sit down right now and explain the hypostatic union of Christ and how he was with God and man at Calvary, but God did not die, yet his flesh did? Can any of us explain why he is, came in likeness of sinful and flesh, yet he was without sin? No, none of us can. And yet every one of us who's called upon the name of the Lord has been saved. And we get to extend that continuing grace to each other to help and walk with each other. That's what God's building. And anything short of that, honestly, let's just go home. And I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. Let's just go home. Because we can watch football or NFL or home improvement channels. Right? We can get on with our lives. But if we want to be involved with what God has for us, then let's invest in each other. Let's take steps and say, Lord, what do you want from me? How can I be part of someone's life? How can, can you help me care about other people? You say the fruit of your spirit is love. Will you, will you generate that in me? Because I don't have it. It's the, it's the spirit's fruit. We don't generate love in ourselves. He generates it in us by the power of his spirit as we yield and receive to him. So Paul has this incredible personal testimony 
that he obviously struggles with, right? I mean, we know the rest of the verses of, of how he, 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 he wants to serve God but finds setbacks, all those things. So he says, look, this is, this is what I want to do and this is what I'm about. And he says, he says, I take great pride in you. Could you say that about the church in Corinth? I take great pride in you guys. We typically say that when somebody does everything right. Right? I take great pride in you because you do it right. Paul's just saying, I love you because you're God's people. And I'm proud of you because you're God's people. And God's working in you. And I take great pride in you. How humble of him. How incredible. He says, I am greatly encouraged. We say that usually when everything's perfect in someone's life. Oh, you're so encouraging to me. How about just being greatly encouraged and knowing that someone's struggling? Struggling not because we're like happy that they're not experiencing full victory, but they're at least willing to struggle. How about being encouraged about someone who's, who, who, who just wants to know how they can grow and is immature? How about being encouraged with that? How about being encouraged that someone just showed up? Right? That, that we could... I don't want to say lower our standards, but that we would be encouraged just in the fact that God is working in someone. Be proud of the fact that they're willing to struggle through things. Not have to wait until they're an upstanding, perfect citizen. Which none of us are, if we're honest. And it's this incredible thing that, that Paul's doing here. He goes on, he says, my joy knows no bounds. Would you say that about your church? My joy knows no bounds. Not about the church, but about the people. I'm so stoked. Again, this is not condemnation. This is just a review. Where are we at in our minds? What is important to us? Hopefully, when you come to church, you think, you know, we can begin to think or we begin to move in a direction where we just go, I'm walking in those doors. Hopefully, James doesn't mess it up. But even if he does, I'm here to see the folks. I'm here to invest in the folks. I'm here to sing to Jesus. And, and, and to think that I could influence Anyone I have contact with, not because I'm the smartest or the bestest saint that ever lived, but because I have Christ in me and I'm, I'm willing to love someone. And that's, the, that's, the, that's all that Paul is doing here. And he goes on, check out this personal goodness. He says, For when we came into Macedonia, verse 5, we had no rest. We weren't sleeping. You ever been so troubled that you weren't sleeping? Well, Paul, cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. Why would you tell me you had no rest? Get over it, buddy. Right? Then he goes on from there. He says, we were harassed at every turn. Why didn't you just commit that to the Lord? Why are you telling me about it? Conflicts on the outside. Fears within. Well, Paul, you told us that we haven't been given a spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit of power. How can you possibly say you had fears on the inside? You can't fear on the inside. You're Paul. If you have fear on the inside, what am I going to do? How am I going to cope? This is really important. Paul, writing to these people that he loves, was willing to voice, we were scared. We were scared. The situation scared us. You know, when we're talking about dealing with fear or a lack of joy or all the different things, it is not godly, nor is it prescribed in the scripture to pretend those things don't exist. 
You know, the funny thing is when we bury our feelings, we bury them alive. You notice that? So Christianity is not a call to pretend we don't have feelings. It's not a call to pretend like there aren't real harassments out there. It's a call to deal with those things. And one place that we deal with them is hopefully in the body. Right? Like we're told by James to confess our faults to one another. Or Peter, confess our faults to one another. And pray for one another. Right? Hopefully, we're developing relationships in this body and wherever we're from where we can tell people, I was scared. I was really scared. But God was faithful. Or I am really scared. And, and, and the, the mental part of me knows the verses that God is faithful. Right? I can turn there. I can quote them. I have them you know, above my fridge or on my fridge. I can do all those things. So that the mental part of me you know, acknowledges, yeah. But the whatever soul part of me is like, no. This is really bad. And I don't know how to deal with this. And that's what, that's what Paul expresses. It's interesting. Remember back in Romans chapter 7 where he says again, he's, he makes the point, he says, this, he says, with my mind, I agree with the law of God that it is good, but with my body, I obey the law of sin. He says, so it's no longer I who commits the sin. He's not trying to say, I'm not responsible for my sin, but he says, that's not who I am anymore. That's not really me that's committing the sin anymore. He says, that's just my, my fallen flesh. It's not me anymore. And he says, so I thank God that with my mind, I serve the law of God. With my body, it will always serve the law of flesh. Our nature will always be with us. But we have the opportunity to say no to that nature. Paul is vocalizing his nature to these people. This is radical. I mean, uh, he's vocalizing his nature. I don't know if Paul actually knew that this would be preserved for the next, you know, whatever, 2,000 years and and read (laughs) through the millennia. But it is. And he announced it. And he's willing to put it on paper. He opened to them. had fellowship with them. He says, but God comforts the downcast, verse 6. If you have a NASB, it says God comforts the depressed. He comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, and your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. This is pretty wild. So Paul makes the point, he says, hey, look. He says, God comforts the downcast. This word is used about seven or, seven or eight times in the New Testament. And it's, it's the idea um, of being well, it's just downcast. It's the idea of being low, being laid low. And so it's, it's translated in different places, different ways. But here the idea is that we were depressed. We were saddened. Now, depression's an interesting thing, right? Because depending on how we feel about Psychology, sorry to use the P word. Depending on how we feel about psychology and meds and stuff like that, we're all in different places. And some of us reject it and we go, no, there's no way that that could be true. Just have your victory in Jesus. And in other words, uh, on the other extreme, we rely on it. And we say, I can never have victory or be changed because of my psychology or whatever. And either of those positions, um, you know, just to make everybody angry, are correct. The reality is a person can have a broken brain just like they can have a broken heart, you know, a broken bone, they can have liver issues. The brain is an organic feature that somehow miraculously interfaces with an ethereal soul. I mean, it's, it's a miracle that your brain somehow communicates 
what your soul thinks and wants to do and observes and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty, pretty wild that God created that, how it works. So there are times in our life where, and maybe you felt this way, where you're sad or you're down or you can't get out of bed and you can't even vocalize why that is. And then someone who means well says, well, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And you go, okay, great. Now I'm condemned and depressed. So that's, right? You helped me not at all. That's my favorite example. And I use that example all the time because I went to a church that was like that. And they didn't know better. It's fine. But anytime anybody was down, it was just like, well, the Lord says rejoice. And like, I didn't realize that. You know, my 10th time through the Bible, I still didn't. You know, come on. But Paul makes this point. He says, look, God comforts the downcast. And that can be a whole teaching for another time. In this case, he says, he comforts us through Titus. To think that a human being could be the vehicle in which God comfort, comforted them in their downcast. And not just like bummed out, like in their depression. Over the difficulty they were experiencing in the ministry. And I would just propose to myself and to you guys. When we talk, do we cure depression or do we create it? Which is it? How do we talk to people? In this case, Timothy just came, or excuse me, Titus just comes, and he starts talking about the Corinthians. And he begins to tell Paul about the Corinthians. He's like, no, Paul is crazy. There's a whole big, the, the most of the Corinthians, they love you. They're on board with you. They're excited about what's going on. They're excited about your letter that you sent to them, and they're fully on board. And Paul says, that gave me joy. He says, my joy was greater than ever. How human of him. How many of us were taught, no, you have joy no matter what. And you're always as joyful as you're going to be. Because you rejoice in the Lord always. Now be joyful. Get out there and be joyful. What kind of testimony are you going to have if you're not joyful? Pull yourself together. Right? Christians that mean well. We're not trying to mock anyone. How many of us have had that done to us? Repeatedly. And you walk out the door like, okay, I'll plaster this fake smile on my face and pretend like Jesus matters to me more. But Paul's not doing that, is he? He's not calling people to that. He's, he's calling people to fellowship. And his own testimony is this. He says, when I heard about how much you loved me and cared about me, I was on cloud nine. I had more joy than I had ever had before. We here, you know, it's interesting because he would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, and he would say, we're not here to be lords over your faith. We're not here to tell you what to do in your faith. As, as elders, he says, we're here to be helpers of your joy. That was his whole mantra for leadership, his whole mantra for relationship. We're not here to make anybody do anything. We're not here to provide behavioral modification for anyone. We're here to give people joy and peace in who Christ is, developed honest relationships between Christ and us and between one another. That's what we're here for. And we're more than happy to have messy lives. We don't want messy lives, but we're more than happy with it. Because we can walk through things with people. We can be a blessing to people. And to, to hopefully get them plugged in more and more with Christ. And that's why we have things like Bible study and devotions, having a devotional in the morning. All those things, they're tools to one end. Fellowship. To have fellowship, openness, acceptance. To receive and to give love in an unfettered way. It's pretty incredible what God has called us to. It's so much better than just being good. He goes on there. He's going to talk about uh, the letter he sends. He says in verse 7, and not only by, oh, I'm sorry, read that. Verse 8, even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, 
I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So check it out. Paul says, it's, it, again, he says, if I cause you sorrow, even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. He says, I'm glad that my letter, in, in, it literally means hurt you. He says, I'm glad it did. But did you catch that? He goes, I did regret it. So he says, I don't regret it now because I did regret it. Well, Paul, if you're sending spirit-filled letters, how did you regret sending one? Why would you regret that? Because he's human. <laughs> he's human. And he says, I was a little bit concerned. I, was, I, I didn't know what it was going to do. I, I, was, I, re, I regretted it. He goes, but I don't regret it now. And he, and he, and he says, it, he even gives us some clarification in that. He's, verse 9 says, yet now I am happy. Check this out. Not because you were made sorry. Just to kind of go back to our other point, right? He says, I'm not saying these things to condemn you. And now he says, I was never happy that you got made sorry. Their pain was not the source of his joy. It wasn't like he was going, that's right. Now you understand how lame you guys are. Finally, you get what terrible followers of Jesus you are. I'm so glad that you're just smashed. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, that's, that's not what I was happy. He says, I was happy because it generated repentance. So what is repentance? It's a turning from God. Right? Unfortunately, repentance has gotten this rap in Christianity, and I'm not really sure where it started. The, the, excuse me. The repentance is, I promise never to do that again. Now, is the goal to never do that again? Yeah, that's the goal. Right? We're into that. That's the Not sitting. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? Romans 5. No. No, we should not do that. So not sinning is a goal. But it's not sinning for the sake of fellowship. Not just not sinning for the sake of abstinence. So in, in this point that he makes, he's like, I'm so glad because you repented. You turned back to God. It wasn't they said, we'll never do these things again, or hopefully that was an attitude. It was the idea that we're just going to turn to God. We're just going to hear what God has to say. We're going to hear how we can walk with him. So all of a sudden, instead of just abstaining from something that's naughty, they instead had a whole direction to their life that ends in life and fulfillment. Abstinence is empty. It always will be empty. Just avoiding doing bad things is an empty and a miserable life because then all you focus on is what? Not doing bad things. And then I'm going to get into a group and we're all going to talk about the bad things that we do. And then we'll focus on not doing the bad things that we do. And then if I do a bad thing, I'll call that person and tell them I did a bad thing so they can say, you shouldn't have done that bad thing. And so then I'll shame myself and then I won't do that bad thing. And then I'll be more like Jesus. Not really. Right? I'm not saying that having groups and Bible studies are bad. I'm saying that hopefully that's not the purpose of them. Hopefully the purpose of our small groups is not so I can sh I, I shame myself, I commit to shaming myself if I sin. Because then that'll do what? It'll upset me, it'll shame me, and it may curb my behavior, or it may just say, I'm going to stop going to this group and telling these people the bad stuff that I do. But if I actually turn to God and begin to receive from God, I'm honest with him, and, then I, and I understand the promises of his justification through the blood of Christ. I understand that he's with me like a father with a son. I understand that he's with me uh, and he wants to live with me and walk with me. That he's, he's working in me, that he's never given up on me. Well, that's something different, isn't it? That's actually a real motivator. I want to be near to him. Oh, wait, this is, this is costing me nearness? I'm done with that. This is costing me nearness for my family? I'm done with that. This is costing my, my children... So, you know, and, and what they're learning and, uh, about who God is, I'm done with that, right? 
completely different motivation. And he says, For you became sorrowful as God intended, so that you, uh, you were not harmed in any way by us. He says, This sorrow, it didn't harm you. It was God's sorrow. It didn't harm you. It was profitable to you. Verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. In other words, sorrow in our life about being missing out on fellowship with God, it brings about repentance, and that leads to salvation. Now, this is still the verb sozo, but the idea isn't salvation as in initial faith. The idea is sanctification. So the Bible uses that word sozo throughout the different places, and it's often translated salvation, or it's translated uh, sanctification sometimes. So what's being, what Paul is saying here is not you get re-saved every time you turn back to God. That would be crazy. Sorry, I offended Armenian brethren. But it would be, that's this not what we're saying. What we're saying is that, that when we turn to God, when we, that sorrow, that brokenheartedness over our relationship with God and, his, and who He is and what He's done, that that brings repentance, it turns me back to Him, and that leads to my salvation. It leads from a deliverance in my, my, my current dilemma. It causes me to go, go forward to God and to rejoice in what He has for me. It changes me, right? That's where change occurs. I was going this direction, and now I'm going that direction. The other thing that's interesting, and we've talked about this, is you know, when you have habitual sin. When you have sin in your life, for example, if every time you perceive a slight, you get angry. Right? Uh, I'm too humble for that, but maybe that's happened to you. Right? So when we perceive a slight, and it instantly makes us angry, it habitually is something that is established in our mind. Just so you know, this is kind of interesting, part of our sanctification, part of our setting aside. If you go on YouTube right now, you can actually watch someone complete a habit in their brain. You can watch it. You can actually watch neuroplasticity now. Until about 20 years ago, the, the scientists or doctors thought the brain was static. Like you, it finished developing at 25, and then you're just straight sailing from there. But the reality is your brain is always changing. So when you talk about, we talk about making new habits and you say, oh, well, if you do something for you know, whatever the days are, 47 days, I don't remember now, that's how you develop new habits. So a habit is this. It's a, a, a common neural connection in your brain. It's basically thicker matter that the electricity flows through better. It's kind of interesting. Why bring that up? Because not only are we dealing with soul issues when we're trying to deal with sin in our lives, we're also dealing with just physical issues that we're retraining, that we're establishing new neural pathways in our brain. Now, the Bible's just been right the whole time, right? Because it just says, from the very beginning, it says, hey, we should wash ourselves in the Word, <laughs> right? Hey, we, we, we should turn from, from bad things. I'm just letting you know that some of your turning that you're experiencing, some of the reason why you might want to continually go in that direction is not just soulish, it's actually physiological. So it's weird, These, we really are fallen. <laughs> we really are broken, and one day that'll be put away from us. But anyway, so he goes on from there, and he says, uh, see what, verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. So he says, look at the fruit that this sorrow produced in you. What earnestness. Uh, it's, it's the idea that they were genuine, just that they went for it. Like, yes, this has to get dealt with. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. They were upset about what they had done. What alarm. It, you know, they were... They were um, Set, how would you put it? They were no longer at ease at what was going on. They became alarmed about it. And he says there, he goes on, uh, what, re what readiness, excuse me, what concern, what longing, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. 
So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. Now this last statement's a little bit weird. He says, well, when I wrote to you, it wasn't just for the person that did the wronging and for the person who received the wrong, but instead it's so that you could see how... See for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Which, you know, if you're in modern times, your little cult meter goes off, right? I wrote you that letter not because someone offended you and someone did something wrong and someone was offended by it or was hurt by it. I wrote to you so you would be, understand how devoted you are to me. Right? We'd be like, um, I'm not really feeling that. <laughs> what are you talking about? So this is probably, I did a little reading on it. This is most likely, it's a Semitic or a Jewish, like a, essentially a way of talking about it. And it's kind of like when Jesus said, uh, unless you hate your father and mother, you know, uh, in comparison to me, and, you know, then you, you, you can't follow me. It's kind of a similar idea. In other words, Paul's not saying you have to be devoted to me personally. That would actually be against everything he's ever written, right? Because his whole thing is about, there's laboring with him in these things, but his whole thing is about being given to Christ, right? So it's way, what's probably being said here, and what makes way more sense is the idea that Paul's saying, that by working these things out and by receiving my letter, you realize really how he's sending the truth. It's not devotion to him personally, but devotion to the truth that he's been sending, right? Because they're, they're being, um, there's an attempts, attempts in their body for them to be you know, led in other ways that are not uh, of the Lord. So that's our time, and we're going to stop there. Um, but the Lord is good, huh? And, and what he's building is good. And I just encourage you, the, the, the application from today is to not just run out and like, I'm just going to trust everyone and tell everyone about my problems and then they'll just love me. That's not the application. But the application is this. First of all, we can love others. Right? We can love others. And when people are struggling and they're having a difficult time, that we can walk with them through it and help them without condemnation, right? without uh, just behavioral modification in mind but to restore fellowship with Christ, with them, with one another. And then from there also, we can begin to develop relationships with other people in our body. Because we're not going to know if we can trust people until we get to know people, right? And so we have the different opportunities, and I encourage you to, to get to know people in the body. Uh, not as, as a, like a punitive thing, like you just can't be a loner, Hebrews 10 says, or something like that but to also walk in the idea that you could contribute and that you could actually be built up by other people, that we haven't been called to just be on our own and, and, and try our hardest, but we've been called to experience God's love and faithfulness and his word uh, and his Holy Spirit and all those things through other people. It's the way he designed it. If he wanted to, he could have showed up him, himself. And every church in, in the entire world, every Sunday morning, we could just have like this hologram of Jesus and he could tell us exactly, but he didn't. He sent you guys, right, to love and to care for folks. And so we have a great calling, and it exceeds anything else that this world has to offer us. So if you feel stuck in your sin, and you're just like, man, I can't beat this, we'd love to pray with you. You can be honest with us, we'll be honest with you. No condemnation here. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, you know, this is all possible because Jesus bled for us. That he took our sin upon himself. That he actually shed his precious blood that he actually was pierced, that he was crucified, and it was, it was God the Father's way of judging his son. He orchestrated it. He designed it. 
so that all of our sin, past, present, and future, could be solidly and, and very realistically, in a real sense, practically forgiven by God. And if you've never received Christ's forgiveness based on his blood and received his power because of his resurrection, I would implore you to receive that today. This is the time to know peace and forgiveness from God. Tomorrow's not promised, but, but we have now. So we're available if you'd like to come up afterwards. And uh, God bless you guys. Enjoy your Sunday. Enjoy your week. And go with God. Huh? Father, thank you for your great grace and mercy. Thank you for your great word. Thank you for our brother Paul. Uh, Lord, his, we praise you for his, his excellent writings inspired by you. We thank you that a man who had struggles and a man who had fears and was harassed and all those things, that he found your faithfulness to get him through. I pray for us in places where we've refused to yield to you, where we've refused to give over our lives, that by your mercy, you would continue to speak to us. Lord, I pray, reveal to us how devastating our sin really is. I pray that you would bring along people uh, along our side to love us, to take care of us. And you bring us alongside people to love and to take care of them. We pray, Lord, that really across the world that your gospel would grow. That it grow here on the peninsula, in, the, in our county, in our state, in the, the uttermost parts of the world. And that your people would be found rejoicing in peace uh, over what you've done, regardless of circumstance. So thanks for being kind to us. We really appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.